This is what happens. Okay. And, and we're live finally with our 167th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm the real Ken, Ken Johnson, <laughs> uh, at CK Tricky on Twitter. Joined by my co host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. As you can tell, we are being inundated with Ken's today. So just get, get used to the idea. Um, welcome to another episode. We're super excited to be back. Ken and I spent last week in Nebraska, in Omaha for KernelCon. It was amazing. Like we, we taught classes and I didn't have to ask if people could hear me before like they answered questions, you know, like it was all in person. Um, forget kind of what that high is like of actually being in person and around people. Everyone was super awkward because it had been a couple of years. Well, it, it was either that or we're all geeks. One of the two. I, I don't know. Right. Like, you know, we'll, we'll, you, know you, you win some, you lose some, whatever. Um, but there has been a lot that's happening. We're excited to have Ken Toller on again with us today at Relotnek on Twitter. If I remember right. Um, that is right. And yeah. Ken's going to have, we're going to have a discussion on all things crypto. He's been playing in that space from a AppSec perspective for a little while now. Um, So we're going to dig in here shortly, but we did want to give props to KernelCon before we jump into it. Um, Ken and I were saying how, how well it was run. I mean, Ken, you had some other um, opinions there, like some observations that you wanted to add. Oh yeah, no, no. So the the venue was really was really awesome, and anytime we had any need whatsoever, it was like um, the actual like staff working that venue were awesome. Um, the crew putting together Colonel Colonel Con did a fantastic job. I was very impressed. My son Max, he um, he loves the swag that they, they that I brought back, uh, especially that flashlight. It's like a telescope feature on it, and then, like you can bend the flashlight around. So that was, we actually spent part of Sunday trying to uh, learn the algorithms around Rubik's cubes that since they'd given one, us one of those. So, you know, it was really, it was really fun. Um, so the venue, the swag, everything was really cool. Well organized. The spe- the uh, staff were really nice. Um, and just, you know, honestly, just being able to do, just being able to train people in person was amazing. Like, you know, um, getting that live feedback, being able to have conversations during breaks, being able to just say, Hey, call out the answer, you know, having people do their readouts on the end of the second day in person where we get to see their, their notes and we get to ask questions and collaborate just that real time. I forgot how great that is. It was wonderful. I loved it. And it was, it was a good time. And I got some training in while I was out there for, of my own. I got to go and get trained up at one of the local, Shout out to Omaha Academy of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You guys are awesome. They, uh, they're never going to watch this podcast, but, you know, it was cool <laughs> to go out there nonetheless. So, yeah, good time, man. What would you think overall? Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I, again, like, I, it feels strange because it's been so long that everything felt kind of new again, right? Getting in person. <laughs> actually, like, the hallway con, right? Like, we talked about this with a couple of people um, you know, just other security teams, people, speakers and attendees, but you, we've missed that just interactions outside of, Hey, you're giving a talk and we're, you know, we're throwing questions at you in the comments or whatever else, but just the interaction was great to have. 
Um, but they did a really good job of pulling that off, like providing those opportunities, supporting us as trainers, obviously. Um, like that was, you know, we kind of live for that or we have right in the past. Um, and yeah, they, they just seem, I mean, it was, it was incredibly well run. I told people before that they should go if they had an opportunity, right? Like we obviously had people from that listened to the podcast that were there training with us, um, Adam and his team or the guys from contrast, Dave Lindner, who's been on the show before was there as well. It was great to see those guys. Um, but yeah, I, like it's it's going to be one moving forward that I'm going to recommend everybody jump into, right? Um, the content was great. Uh, the organizers did a good job and they're going to outgrow the space they were in at that um, hotel pretty quickly, right? Like it wouldn't surprise me if they got a good 600 people there next year, just based on how things were run this year. So yeah. It was kind so, of funny during the course, yeah. we're sitting yeah. there talking about mass assignment insecure object mapping and reflection and uh at the same time you're looking into getting reports of and we saw it on our slack chatter as well perhaps the appsec slack the uh, uh spring for shell vulnerability um so it's just kind of funny like as we're discussing this these types of issues inside the course sure enough another one comes up and um weird timing but you know kind of just uh shows yeah stuff just comes back around over and over again yeah it, it does right and we've got a really good write-up on that um the one from jay frog that we were looking at or we were passing around today so let's i'll drop that into the comments here pretty quick quick um but it like okay so <laughs> like ken was saying talking about like which we talk about ken either one of you, right? Like (laughs) Ken's talked about this at some point. Right. Um, But like you're saying, like the mass assignment, the data binding attacks that are happening and then the configuration, I like, I I explicitly remember we talked about this. I mean, it was the second day of the course and everybody was still trying to figure out what the hell was going on with uh, spring shell, the spring shell vulnerability, but we were talking about configuration and how Java makes it really easy to change configurations programmatically, right? Um, and, and then you sarcasm. jump in, sarcasm. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it sucks like from a trying to figure out where things actually affect the running instance, right? Because um, there are so many places to do it, whether that's XML files, whether you're extending out the configurators, you know, what have you, right? But you can you can tweak all those configuration parameters based on, the running instance. So it may not reflect in the XML files behind the scenes. But if you look at the spring shell vulnerability or the exploit itself, one of the keys to it is that they're able to override Tomcat specific class loader attributes, change the access log file path to somewhere under the web root directory, and then push their shell up in order to run it, right? So they're taking advantage of both Logging, uh, what what is that? The Crocs and socks of uh, security, right? Socks. Like you know, Crocs and socks, baby. They're changing logging. They're changing some configuration, and then they're actually able to do basic. Uh, basically, it's a mass assignment or a data binding attack in order to execute that RCE, right? Um, it, it's pretty novel and it's pretty clever. The problem is that it's it's kind of a baseline configuration that's in a lot of walkthroughs. Um, so developers look at it, take it 
implement it and then they're vulnerable if they're if they are running tomcat in this specific configuration so yeah i, I mean give that a read if you don't understand what's going on with the spring for shell vulnerability um it lays it out pretty easily i like if you're not running tomcat you're probably not vulnerable to this um but you know if you're just hearing about it now um and you are running tomcat that could be a problem Yeah, I think you have to have. They they talk about what what um which conditions uh, allow you to be vulnerable to this, like having Java nine um used, Java nine SDK used, and uh, a couple other things like you mentioned, Tomcat. So, but yeah, taking user input, creating code out of it, never a good thing, uh, or rarely a good thing. <laughs> so, so I have seen RC as a service, so there's that, but. Uh, um, anyways, cool. So, uh, do you want to get into what we brought, uh, the other 10, uh, on to discuss? Is that, am I hearing, is that my, no, I'm hearing there some is, phone ringing. Of there some is kind. some ringing. Sorry. Yes. That was something was going on with me. Somebody was calling and it was screwing with my Bluetooth. Sorry guys. Well, Probably about your extended car warranty service. Yeah. It probably is. I, I need to get on that. I keep it, apparently it expires every like two weeks based on the calls I get. So yeah, the representative is, uh, is Ken. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in. speaking, uh, so let's talk about what you're into these days. Speaking of yeah. the Ken's. Yeah. Ken Toller, like, what are you up to these days? What, you know, I think one of the main, main things we, you know, we're going to talk about today is sort of the, the, the crypto space work you've been doing. But yeah, if you could catch people up on since the last time we spoke to you, what all you've been working on and yeah, what's, what's, what's your interest currently? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, look, still application and, uh, and cloud security mostly, but uh, the focus has been, you know, like you said, in the cryptocurrency space and in blockchain and, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting how much the skills overlap. And, uh, you know, I've been working on that stuff for probably about a year, year and a half, uh, mostly focused on Solana work and, um, and some of these, I guess, lesser known chains, although Solana is getting pretty popular now. Um, but but yeah, still same kind of stuff. Source code reviews, threat modeling, architecture reviews, uh, things of that nature. Just making sure the development teams are are working in uh, you know working on things securely, uh, and keeping that uh, development hygiene up. I think it's it's very interesting to see. You were just talking about it. You know, we kind of come around the the bend again, and we keep repeating the same mistakes. And I think that in the cryptocurrency space, it's it's no exception. It's like the newest you know, the latest hotness, more people are getting into it. Uh, and, and we are seeing a lot of this, a lot of similar things happen, uh, except, you know, everything moves faster. And I think that this is the fastest I've seen things move in a while. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of issues cropping up with that, but, um, but it's a super interesting space. There's a lot to learn. I mean, you know, it's, uh, never an expert, always a student. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, I think that's where, where I'm living these days. That article by Moxie, where he talks about, you know, basically building the, building an NFT and abusing, um, the whole concept of NFT and it basically coming down to like, well, at the end of the day, it's still, um, you know, this is still a client server relationship ultimately. Um, and I think that's where 
you know, I'm, I'm super interested is like, it sounds like even though there's obviously new um, considerations with the, you know, the, the, the way that blockchain works and, and financial transactions there, thereof. Uh, however, everything that's sort of being built around that, the infrastructure around all of that, uh, it sounds like from folks I've talked to, such as yourself and others that are kind of consulting on these things, like it's not the infrastructure around all of it is still very much, you know, traditional sort of security concerns that you would you know, typically be concerned with. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this pendulum that we're on in cryptocurrency and in blockchain where it's like, you know, things were, you know, when, when the Internet sort of came around, we were sort of everything was that the concept was kind of this decentralized space people could post stuff and do all these kinds of things and then you know it became more and more centralized and all these big companies started you know all the social media companies and everything started to get controlled and whatever and we've swung into this sort of idealistic decentralized space where everything should be decentralized but i think that we're kind of like on this swing of Oh, well, we, you know, let's go solve this problem. People are solving it with, you know, centralized infrastructure. And maybe it makes sense to, to decentralize some things and not decentralize others. And so there's this, I think we're still kind of figuring it out. And yes, you're right. Like a lot of the same problems crop up. You know, we, we have this, uh, this public ledger. There's information on there that uh, you may not want out there. Or how do you handle, you know, performance or how do you handle, logging and monitoring you brought up. I think um, folks are, are trying to solve these issues in the space. And I recently, and I don't want to like on any projects, but I was listening to um, uh, someone actually looking to solve this, this problem for smart contracts and saying that, you know, smart contract developers don't have an easy way to gain insights about whether or not something is being used correctly or not. And um and, and they're trying to build out this, this logging infrastructure for smart contracts in a way to provide insights to developers and it's under centralized infrastructure. So, you know, pulling information out of the chain. Um, so a lot of the same problems exist and then how we, how we solve them, I think is, is going to, yeah, we're going to end up somewhere in the middle of these two, like decentralized and centralized, uh, architectures. Uh, I look at it kind of like as a, as a platform, as a tool, you know, and so, you know, make your, you know, use the tool to fill your, um, you know, what you're trying to do, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. I mean, that, that's always been my biggest thing there, especially with blockchain, right? Like, you know, it, we have a lot of these companies that it's like, they're trying to shoehorn blockchain into, um, into environments, into technologies or whatever into, and yeah, into a space where, it doesn't necessarily have, it doesn't solve anything. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's certain things, I mean, you know, like, like great, you could create, you know, a, a blockchain that just logs, right. Like all the stuff out of your uh, whatever. Right. Like, but, but how expensive does that get? Right. Like how does that, what does that actually look like? Um, is it really a solution that would be useful and would make life easier for people? Like if it was decentralized, right what happens if we do have a decentralized log, right? Like there's, there's all sorts of issues that we can, we can introduce there that don't necessarily. Yeah. They make security worse and they make our life harder. Right. That's, that's basically yeah. what it boils down to. Um, 
but there is stuff that's really that's really great about it, right? Like you look at some of those dexes, like the decentralized exchanges, being able to pay people, you know, person to person. Um, but then I, I've got a hard, like I have a hard time, like with some of the claims that people make about how like secure things are or how mm-hmm. how it's going to solve like all the world's problems because I can pay somebody in you know China using a dex and you know we can trade coins, right? Like, I, yeah that's great. But do you really need to do that? Right? Like, is that a problem that hasn't been solved? Uh, yeah. The earth right. has to be solved. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen these behaviors before, right? This is what I like. This is what fascinates me about blockchain as a technology is that we saw the same thing happen with cloud. We saw the same thing happen with containers. We see, we are still seeing it happen with Kubernetes, you know, like overcomplicating things for the, for just like the sake of complicating them. And it's happening in, you know, the blockchain space as well. Um, so like understanding what you're trying to do is a, like a hugely important step, you would think, on the design side. And I think that that is kind of where we are always we are always sort of chasing that in security is that we kind of get to the point where people are using this new technology. We interject this audit mechanism from a security side, like we're just coming at it. Oh, we'll analyze your code. We'll do this. And then slowly we start to shift into like, okay, well, maybe we'll look at the design and, and like design it securely. And like, let's think about the problems before we actually start implementing. Yep. And, um, and man, these things move so fast. Some of these projects are like two people and they're, <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's bananas. Like it's uh, wild these, west. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about CTFs and hackathons, like in the security space and how things happen. Sometimes folks like go to these hackathons build a product. I was talking to, to someone the other day They spent like 16 hours a day for three weeks, building this product, had a prototype, got funding from, you know, another project. And then it was like on, you know, a main net within a couple of months. And then the team is like three or four people and they're like, all right, we're ready for the audit, you know, and you're, you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> yeah, here we go. And then finding security people is just like, I mean, we're already at sort of a talent shortage. It's like finding people that are into that space, into that chain, or like have those practices is is like enormously difficult. And, uh, and um, yeah, I mean, just a constant, constant race, super fast paced. Um, Yeah. yeah, It's a wild world. Well, and I was going to, I was going to give a call actually like one of the talks that I attended (laughs) at Kernel Con was um, Sam Curry. Uh, he did his whole talk on basically, you know, analyzing blockchain or analyzing Web3 companies, right? And Web3 properties. And every single one was, oh, well, I found XSS and then I was able to pop the admin portal. And, you know, because it, it was all the traditional web app vulnerabilities, but we were using that to basically access uh, like Web3 blockchain stuff. And like, so it wasn't necessarily the security of the blockchain itself that's being, yeah, that's being hacked or exploited. It's it's all the cruft that we put around it, right? It's a yeah. traditional, oh, we want to expose this through a web browser. Now we can attack it. Um, and yeah, and then along those lines, um, Heather, uh, InfoSec Anon, um, who we know uh, and, yeah, she helped us out with one of the cons, right? Like, uh, anyway, she gave she a talk also on created the artwork for one of those. Uh, for I want to say it was the midwinter's night. I thought. Yeah. Something. Yep. Um, but she gave a talk as well. Heather did on basically how do you keep yourself safe in a Web three world? 
uh, which was, it was pretty prescient, but pretty like, um, it's all these up and coming, coming technologies, what you actually use to, you know, access your wallets, how you recognize what's a, a centralized exchange, you know, what's, act, you know, who actually has control over your coins and how do you, you know, how do you know when there's a scam? is a lot of what she talked about. And it was basically, yeah, most of this is a scam, right? There's all this say. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. So be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you see a, a lot of the traditional attacks um, uh, pop up and, 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 and I think it kind of comes down to what the developers care or don't care about. Um, you know, there, there's sort of these different personalities or different personas of, of developers that depending on the type of project that's being developed, like, you know, they might be, well, you know, if it's a, if it's a, you know, if it's a phishing attack as an example, like, I mean, that's huge, right? The scams that come through like the discord servers and there's this, yep. especially with NFT launches and all these launches and being the first to adopt this new technology or, you know, kind of like be a part of those communities is kind of instantly a call to action and instantly a sense of urgency. So uh, from a, like a fishing perspective, it, you're the, I mean, you are just like set up to do whatever you'd like. I mean, just be there at the time and have your scam site ready and, and kind of like go for it. And so I think that there is this pressure from the community that almost if you if you fall for these things it's ultimately we do everything we can to try to tell you where the right links are and all this kind of stuff but it's your fault user right and so i think that when that responsibility starts to shift to more established organizations or companies is when they'll start to care a bit more about how to protect users from that type of thing and i think you're, you're starting to see some tools pop up in the market around how to protect yourself and, um, you know, and it's more end user kind of facing tools. And then whether or not there is some sort of centralized infrastructure that these people can be, or these organizations can be responsible for to protect the user. Um, and to, you know, to your point, uh, Seth, like the, uh, one of the more recent bridge hacks was an infrastructure issue, right? Somebody kind of popped one of the nodes was able to, um, you know, uh, influence um influence that and basically just drain this drain funds from you know wherever just because it was a back door um and that was an infrastructure issue and had nothing to do with the security of the, the blockchain itself or any of that it was just like somebody popped a box and that's normal stuff so they didn't put the proper protections around that yeah yeah i, I mean it's one thing to have these decentralized exchanges and be able to, to pass that money around, but then it, yeah, I mean, it does get pushed like that security gets pushed from, okay. The bank that has traditionally been the store for your money, for your, you know, for all of your digital currency, right. Cause that's basically what USD or any of the, you know, any of the main currencies are anymore to, okay, your wallet now houses that. And we, we know that users just don't have the best hygiene, right? You know, as far as like security and, you know, making sure that they are using, you know, proper passwords for number one, right? Like all that kind of stuff, right? And the second that they get popped, then, you know, yeah, there is the bridge where they have access to, you know, massive amounts of funds, but from a targeted perspective, it feels like you could drain pretty easily. And then you add on top of that things like smart contracts, where they give certain control to an application or a smart contract that's running on the chain that could drain funds if it is like, if it's so, it's so inclined. Right. So there's, 
there's so much going on. And, and I think this is what you were getting at, Ken, right? Is it's moving so fast. Um, and that was going to be my next question to you is, okay, what do you, what, first of all, what do you mean by moving so fast? And then second, like two parts, right? Um, where do like traditional AppSec and security people start, right? Like what is your recommendation for that? But, you know, first off, you know, why is it, or what is it that you mean by moving so fast? Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind when I talk about speed uh, is how fast a, an idea goes from idea to production application. You know, okay. if you think of it in a traditional sense. And I've seen projects start and get deployed within a matter of like a couple of months or even have a prototype on a, on a dev net um, probably within a couple of weeks. And so the, the kind of path to security there is typically like one or two people have an idea, they spin this thing up, they launch it, uh, they want a security audit before it goes onto mainnet, they get the audit, and then there's this point in time that the audit is done where you're like, okay, you're, there, we, we didn't find anything. But as like anyone in the security industry knows, is in a, even in the slowest of slowest cases, that's still just a point in time audit. There's no kind of, um, it, all it's really doing is saying, all right, we spent like whatever. Well, let's, let's, let's say we spent six weeks on it, really digging into like this, these smart contracts and we found X amount of things and you fixed it. Okay, go. If you are developing from like zero to a hundred in a couple of months, imagine what the next two months looks like. Like how often are you auditing? So there's no, um, because the focus is on this stamp of approval, I want to get an audit so that my users feel like they are using this in a safe way and that I have an audit provides almost a false sense of security because of how fast all of these things change and they can change within a matter of weeks. Core functionality can be changed within a matter of weeks. And when you talk about the size of the team, two or three people, um, there's probably not a security person there. And if we talk about like what we, we kind of say in the security industry around, you know, security people aren't there because they're necessarily better at security than the developer. They're there because the developer is focusing on delivering a product and security is focused on making sure that that product has robust controls and is safe and secure. And, you know, that's what they're looking for. So their job, their motivation is different. And so if you don't have somebody looking at it consistently and constantly, and even somebody skilled looking at it consistently and constantly from a security perspective, can you really be assured that it is secure for its lifetime? Probably not. And these things change every day. So it just, um, you look at the commits, it's like open source. It's like trying to keep up with open source with less security resources and less people. <laughs> How do they engage but, you? I mean, is that, I mean, like what, when you, when you are first approached to help these companies out, you know, let's start with who is the demographic and who's the driving force behind it? Is it the security team or is it uh, the engineers? Do they know exactly? So that's the first part, like who's, who's typically approaching you from within these companies. And then the second part is like, is it, you know, cause you know how this goes. Sometimes people aren't really sure what they want. So, so sometimes they'll reach out to you. And, and like you said, they'll, it'll be as broad as I want a security audit. And yep. they're like, you, of uh, what? And they're like, well, we've got, you know, and they'll start to usually lay out some tech or something. And in a normal case, not not this 
and not in the crypto space, just normally they'll say, oh, we got this infrastructure. Maybe these are things we care about. Totally. Sometimes they know exactly what they want. But uh, I'm curious with crypto, like what's so who's your demographic usually within these companies? And then, um, you know, what do they typically how do they typically approach you? Do they know exactly what they want or is it a mixture? Uh, there, there's a lot bundled in there. And I think one of, one of my favorite things about this community of developers is that most of the people that approach you are technical, are developers themselves, are engineers that are working on the product and have an intimate understanding of what they are trying to accomplish functionally. So they're usually the ones that are approaching you. Okay. Um, and that's awesome because one, it means that like engineers are thinking about security and they're they're coming to the table with like this idea that they want someone to tell them what's wrong with the product. Um, and that's incredibly awesome. It's not like a compliance driven thing or anything like that. The downside is you're right. The vast majority of these folks, especially small projects, don't know what they're looking for. So they are looking for what the community tells them they need, which is a security audit or a pen test. And those things are kind of loosely defined and are probably dependent on the project. So, you know, you might have this kind of maybe there's maybe there is some infrastructure, a database in a custodial wallet or something like that. Um, and they want a pen test that kind of makes sense. But if they're if they like come to you with like a 1500 line smart contract and they're like, we want a pen test, you're kind of like, OK, well, you know, what do you, what do you mean by that? You know, and the the tooling is may or may not be available or might be something that you, you have to kind of custom make as you're going. And so they don't really know and they're looking for expertise from the security community on what they need. And we're slowly changing the terminology, the narrative of like what that looks like. But I think that there is no consistent terminology across security vendors inside of the space to be able to say, what's a pen test in this space? What's a code review in this space? What is an audit in this space? And that's where I think people get hung up. Um, I would say that the, the, the crypto community, the blockchain community is hyper aware of security, even if they're not necessarily, um, intimately knowledgeable about what that means. I always assumed that and it's funny because you mentioned that the, the, the folks, you know, building the people you're working with, they, they, they're, they're tech, they're technology their job is in tech, you know, they're tech focused and obviously they're somewhat aware of security or at least that there's a need, but there's, there's a couple of interesting concepts. One is that, you know, there isn't a ton of regulation, whereas like with traditional, we've all done consulting for financial serve for financial services companies, uh, quite a bit of regulation there, quite a bit of things you specifically have to do less regulation in this space. But I've always wondered too, like the user base, you know, because we talked about phishing being an issue. Um, and I mean, even technical people can get, obviously, technical people can get phished all the time. You get scammed all the time. But um, it does seem like the user base, at least on the surface for crypto related activities, um, seems like it would have more of a technical bend to the, the user base. But then, you know, I, I also think about stuff like, like a Coinbase where, you know, anybody can go in there, sign up, buy, buy and sell and trade um crypto so it seems like it might be a mix um but yeah there's it doesn't seem like there's a lot of regulation and and there's much for you to it feels like you're kind of making things up as you go similar to what how appsec was when we started where we're just sort of like piecing things together that we know are vulnerabilities and maybe there's some tools out there 
you know, that are free that are, people are starting to hack on and work on. But the Wild West essentially is what it, what it felt like. And this feels similar. Yeah, no, I mean, you're you're totally right. Um, the user base, it, it is the Wild West because the user base varies depending on where where folks are coming into the community. Right. You talk. I mean, there there are a lot of discussions in in cryptocurrency around how to make it more accessible to the everyday user, right? In the same way that companies like uh, Robinhood make uh, trading more accessible to the everyday user. Does that that means like mobile applications or how do we bring you know browser wallets into mobile to make that user experience a bit better? Because from a product design perspective, we're talking about making it more accessible. So I think that um, as that becomes more commonplace that the, the like exposure uh, to the everyday user happens, like we're going to see more and more of these same security flaws, uh, you know, phishing or uh, social engineering happen in more technical spaces like trading or NFTs or being on a drop or something like that. There's also like these incredibly intelligent folks coming from the finance space, you know, options trading, derivatives and stocks and all that kind of stuff that are following these markets that are very technical, but in a different space. And so there's this weird juxtaposition of skills between, you know, like fraud, uh, finance, um, you know, development, engineering, cloud infrastructure that creates this space of like, um, you can be technically knowledgeable in one area of this and be effective to kind of go back to, you know, what you were talking about, Seth, around like, where do people start? Um, There's, there are a lot of places to start in cryptocurrency and in blockchain. And I think that that is kind of why, right? You could actually come from like a bank fraud team that is just looking for patterns of how people exploit um, equations, math, whatever, and have a space in this, in, in uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, because I think eventually once the incident response and fraud awareness becomes more commonplace, you're going to need those people that are on, on the lookout for that stuff. And I being able to identify these same types of patterns in this blockchain ecosystem, right. In this cryptocurrency ecosystem, um, you're also yeah. going to need cloud people, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah well, factor. Wow. Well, and I was going to say like, there's there, traditionally some of that like some of that fraud some of that detection specifically to that point ken has all been hidden behind the curtain right like so you have banks and you have communities that like are watching for that sort of thing nowadays it's all public on the blockchain right like you look at that most recent bridge attack and they've frozen that wallet from being able to do anything where the funds ended up Right. So there's, you know, half a billion dollars that's sitting in this wallet the guy can't get at, but it's all public. Like you can go out and see like what's actually going on and how much is owned by all these different resources. Whereas traditionally it was, yeah, it was all hidden. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays into it. Like as some of those people come out, out of the woodwork, so to say, so to, yeah. Um, and it changes your get response teams completely. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's a whole different. I mean, that's whole. Yeah, I mean, like, because normally, you know, your abuse teams are to your points that like your abuse teams are, I mean, both incident response and abuse. It's it's like, you know, it, it can be pretty 
behind the curtains in terms of like some of that stuff. I know our abuse team works on very specific things to our ecosystem and our platform, right? So they're not doing stuff that you might see elsewhere. You know, it's not the same at one cut, like it's not the same at GitHub as you would see maybe at Twitter, we'll say, right? Um, so however, in this case, yeah, you're gonna be dealing with very like similar abuse cases around, but then in terms of there being people trained up to actually deal with this and actually handle incidents at like two o'clock in the morning and do that, you know, that variant analysis, what, what we call variant analysis, you know, finding other variations of the same vulnerability. Um, man, that's just a whole, whole, it feels like it would be a whole lift and shift. Like you'd really need to start now built well, you know, a while back, I guess, building out like what that looks like. Cause nobody's. But we always come into it. Yeah, we always come into it after, right? So, you know, yeah. to Ken's point, as as far as like what what we did with cloud, right? How long did it take us to really get some good tech in place that would monitor cloud configurations for security controls, right? Um, and yes, there's certain things that the that the blockchain and these companies do well from a security perspective because it's designed into those components, but the ones surrounding it, like incident response, like you're saying, Ken, like, are we really monitoring that? Like what is Binance or, you know, some of these, you know, bigger exchanges, what do they do to watch for fraud? Um, because it, we're very reactive now. Like you watch the space in the news and it's like, oh crap, somebody just stole a billion dollars. Maybe we should go do something about that. Right. Like that, that's traditionally what the, what the articles say. And like, we're just not ahead of it yet. Um, and, and then it also comes down to things like, okay, people are putting all these smart contracts on the networks. Is anyone auditing those? Like, it's almost like a package repository, Ken, right? Like, you know, we've got NPM, we've got all these smart contracts that are running on Solana or whatever else. Are those all audited for security? Because people just keep adding to that list. Um, yeah. And yeah, and you can fork it because you can see what the actual code is and then you can make changes to it and issue your own smart contract that's going to different wallets and going to different places and has different, you know, variants or, you know, invariants and different conditions built into when it actually transfers money. And, and no one's looking at that. There's not a good way to, well, there's no centralized authority that's taking care of that. Right. Like it, I, we're still yeah. trying to secure packages being uploaded to these ecosystems yeah. and struggling. So, it, and, yeah. And, you know, there there are, I think that part of it is we are, you know, if you look at on the Ethereum side, there is like Open Zeppelin and these frameworks. And you're starting to see frameworks uh, pop up in Solana with, you know, Anchor. But again, there there is this, it, it, get, it just moves so fast that you are, the, the versions change. I mean, there's like a running joke that by the time you've updated to, you know, the latest version of the CLI to build your smart contract, you know, you're the next one's out. And so there's, you're constantly trying to catch up with these new methods because folks are really trying to secure it earlier in the process and provide some scaffolding and guardrails around how to, you know, put these things out uh, in a secure way but maybe the documentation's behind or folks don't know how to use it or they're not trained. And so it just becomes, you know, a constant fight of uh, getting that information out there and making sure that it's consistent and accurate in this huge open source community um, that is ever evolving and ever changing. 
and it's incredibly fun. <laughs> but uh, but it is it is a real challenge. And I think all of the concepts we talk about in terms of making sure that we are uh, involved in those conversations uh, is probably the most exciting part for me because engineers want it to, you know, they want it yeah. to, they want an easy way to make these things secure and they want, they want their stuff audited. They want it done. They want the feedback. I mean, it's, it's the, I would say that the really cool thing is that when we deliver a report, those things get fixed. Every single issue from high to low, most of the time gets fixed or is addressed right? Because they want to, they, and they, and it happens within like a couple of weeks or whatever, if it's a systemic issue, maybe longer, but I'm really impressed by the community's willingness to take the report, take feedback and act on it, which in traditional AppSec, I'm always kind of like fighting, you know, report findings. Well, can you lower the severity of this or, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that kind of thing. And this, it's just like, okay, why, why is it high or why is it medium? All right, cool. We get that. Like, we're going to go fix it. And they just go and do it. And it's and that's like an incredible feeling, incredible relationship it, to have with with. It, it almost seems like regulation and compliance not being a thing, sadly, makes the focus on security more real. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like exactly. It's so messed up, but it's hilarious to think about. It is. It's so. It's so uh, different. It's a different way of engaging, and and folks are awesome. I think that there's also a um, there's a bit of a. a I don't, I don't know how to really describe it, but the interesting thing is um, there's, there's a huge push to making sure that everything is open source. You know, that's a, that's a big debate in the community, like closed source versus open source. And, you know, the, the kind of security through obscurity argument and that whole thing gets mixed up in there. Um, and so a lot of what it comes down to is folks are like, well, if it's open source, someone can audit it. And uh, it's the responsibility of the user to review what they are using. And uh, it's kind of this weird uh, place to be because you you get both sides of the argument, but you're kind of like, well, the user, I mean, are you trying to exclude everyone that doesn't know how to read code from this ecosystem? And I think that that's not where the whole community wants to go. They, you know, so there's this battle between exposure uh, and sort of technical aptitude that is a really interesting, you know, dynamic dichotomy, whatever, between you know, what is being developed and what is being used um, that makes it kind of another interesting thing to look at from a security perspective in terms of how do we not only educate engineers and developers, but maybe educate users and what to look for because, you know, now it's exposed to them. And when they make a decision to use a new contract, the whole thing is you can look at the code yourself. So how do we enable them to make that code easy to read or make it easy to you know, audit at a high level or determine whether it's safe uh, or secure or robust. Um, where does that exist without a central authority, right? How do we do that? Yeah, that I mean, that was exactly where I was going to go was the central authority, right? It's the the, the trust issue. Like it, it's, it's fascinating because we've taken the, again, with the, the exchanges, we've taken the bank out of the picture as we're, we're executing financial transactions, right? Um, or we're like buying NFTs, right? Like we're buying art or whatever else you know, is represented by that NFT. Um, so instead of trusting that the bank or whatever else is, you know, has your best interest as the third party that's receiving or transferring those funds, you are trusting the developers themselves and that's it. Um, 
right? Like, you know, I, I mean, trying to read some of that code, if you're like, if you've never seen JavaScript before, or like code on, you know, from a whatever perspective, you'll recognize some words and that's about it, right? I, you know, at some point we should do an, a, you know, an exercise and just giving someone a smart contract, like not a technical person, somebody outside of that circle and saying, hey, would you use this? Because right. their eyes are just going to glaze over and they're going to be like, well, what does it do for me? And we're like, well, you have to figure that out, right? They say that it does X, Y, and Z, like we can give them that much, but you know, there could be other stuff in there. Yeah. It's the, the it's, trust issue is huge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. And it's almost like you kind of, I wonder, you know, how do you make it easier to read or how do we provide that, um, you know, that sort of stamp of approval or on process or procedure. Um, and I think we're only going to figure that out as organizations and companies mature and the, in the space matures. But one of the, one of the rays of hope I have is that engineers are willing to sort of listen to security folks and say, yeah, I mean, we should be doing these things. So getting something into like a CICD pipeline or an automated, um, scan or like putting all that stuff in is really just a matter of us as like engineers helping to develop these tools to put in place. And then the, the effort to get them in place is probably much lighter than it would be in a corporate environment. It's just that we have to like focus on doing that while also auditing all of these projects. And there's just the people problem and everything else. So it's, um, yeah, like I said, speed it's moving too fast for us. Uh, but uh, we're we're doing our best. You should make an NFT stamp of approval. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just uh, so it's... What we're gonna we're gonna create a chain, and we'll only mint NFTs when we decide that a contract is secure. Is that is that what I'm yeah. hearing? Right. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. But all, <laughs> what are the comp- yeah? They just have to pay exactly. What what um what are the, you know, sort of common things you're used to seeing? If you can, I don't know what you can speak to and what you cannot, but, um, you know, in general, in a general (laughs) sense, in the vague, using vagary, what's that? I was was going to say, tell me how many unit tests are actually seen on chain. Oh gosh. Yeah. There are a lot of unit tests actually. Really? Yeah. I, I would say, um, the, the funny, like the funny thing is that, um, especially with things that are written in Rust, they may not be the most robust unit tests, but I've seen a lot of unit tests, and um, I've seen a lot of uh, tests built, especially in the in the framework for Anchor around like what is this intended to do? We expect this to happen, yes. and it and and they run the test, and all the tests need to pass. And a lot of our initial conversations with some of these uh, projects are, hey, we can't get the tests to run, or we can't get the tests to pass. It's almost like a table stakes initial conversation right after sort of what does this do and what don't we under, what don't we understand about it so i do see unit tests and i'm happy to say that like uh it's it's come more common not common yep. but i would say more common well and i know from you know talking to stefan like logical as well right like the the fuzzing aspect of um like actually testing out blockchain code and smart contract code using things like AFL, like the different fuzzers that are built is out there. I mean, if you look at Bitcoin code in and of itself, it has like a like test functionality built into it to fuzz it, right? Like that's just a part of what they provide on top of, hey, here's the normal unit and integration test to make sure that Bitcoin 
you know, is functioning as expected. And so like, I mean, it was tongue in cheek, right. But uh, the fact that it's actually there um, gives me a little bit more, you know, assurance, I guess. But anyway, sorry, Ken asked a different question and I totally (laughs) sidelined it. So the other interesting thing about the units has built into these frameworks is um, they can be used to sort of play with input because a lot of, especially on newer change, you don't have dynamic, you don't have a way to test dynamically. So the, the unit test can be manipulated and used to generate your own fail and, and test scenarios. So sometimes if you're doing an audit and you're like, oh, you know, I, don't, I recognize that I found this issue, you can write that unit test relatively easily as, as an engineer and, and put that in there. Or you can use it to, I don't, I don't want to call it dynamic testing, but to kind of put some sort of um, arbitrary input through the, the project if you can't actually do it on the chain or on a, on a development environment. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, the, the testing thing is, is kind of nice to see. So, yep. Well, so what other issues then are you seeing, right. On, you know, like, do you have like a most common c- come up with your own, like, uh, yeah. you know, blockchain top 10 Ken. Let's, yeah. Let's do that. We all like checklists. Yes, um, yes. I was actually searching for that ahead of this, uh, podcast, uh, podcast episode to see if there was like a crypto top, Ten, I didn't come up with anything. There were like various lists about securing your crypto assets, but yeah, not a crypto top ten, so to speak, that I c- could find. Um, yeah, I mean the the best. I mean the place to look. I think if you're just looking for like a list of vulnerabilities, probably SWC Registry. If you're looking at Solidity stuff, um, SWC Registry has like a list of things that were found, some examples and stuff like that. But I would say. Um, a lot of it comes down to what you would typically expect access control, um, uh, tampering with input, um, and like not validating some of that stuff. A lot of it comes down to that, I think, or the most common things like, um, failing to put a constraint around a particular, uh, method because the way that, I mean, the way that contracts kind of manifest, especially in more simple, like simpler projects is, um, it's a set of methods. It's basically like almost, I know it's not, you know, it's not object oriented, but it's like a class, right? It's like, there's a method there that's going to be used and anyone has access to generate this transaction and send it to the chain and drop it on there. Um, And so it's being able to control that in some way and follow those practices around access control. And a lot of times those are missing. And so there's just these unforeseen issues or there's a validation that's happening that is inaccurate or, um, you know, doesn't do what you're expecting it to do or can be bypassed. So a lot of it is logic. Uh, and the other big pieces are like algorithm and logic based, like business logic, you know, you intended to do this thing. Um, and we found a way to bypass or, or game the system in this way are probably the most common, um, but I think that the frameworks are, tr- are trying to help reduce some of those things. One of the recent ones I saw, um, it's not super recent that it was implemented, but you know how React has that like unsanitized, whatever, like helps developers understand. I can't remember what the full method is, but it's like use things unsafe. You are doing a bad thing right now uh, kind of stuff. So uh, one of the recommendations in these frameworks is to sort of identify unchecked values, like unchecked accounts as unchecked rather than use this generic like account info um, object. And so... It's, it's basically saying, look, we know that this is unchecked. We're putting it in here as unchecked. So as, a, as an auditor, you can go in and say, okay, I know that these values are unchecked. And is that appropriate in this scenario? Or there, is there anything that I can look at 
you know, for that versus like a checked account or a validated account. So it's also encouraging developers to think like, okay, I'm using something that's unchecked. I need to be careful with this. So that stuff is starting to happen um, in frameworks on Solana, which is super cool. And then easier ways to establish access controls through decorators and stuff is also happening there. Cool. Yeah, we were we were dropping some links in, so we're a little little distracted. Ken, uh, no worries. Dropping dropping links. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. In our course, we actually um, brought up how uh, how often um, the patterns are not clear in these frameworks, and yeah, just in frameworks in general. Um, you know, we use React as like the the example of what you can do right, but yeah, we, we definitely. We're talking about hey, a lot of these methods, you know, they're 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 not named correctly and they're unsafe, and they lead you to believe that's not the case. Um, and it's exactly. not always clear. Yeah. So. And I think, sure. you know, in an in an open source project, which a lot of these are, even if you have those things available, how it's it's kind of the question of how you enforce development standards or practices with your team when it's so distributed and. Um, you're bringing in new, um, new blood all the time, right? And people are rotating in and out. And there's even, you know, kind of this idea of um, paying development teams, you know, in a decentralized way based on their contributions to the project. And so, you know, they'll basically there's there's ideas around payroll, like, you know, you submit these lines and you, you know, through this algorithm, you're paid based on your contribution to the work, which is like a super cool idea. But then you're sort of like, well, how do you control the security and quality of this code? Um, and it, it's just like a, such a weird and Dude, interesting problem to think through. That's actually been my biggest pet peeve is hearing how often now. This, this is not just in the crypto space. This is also in, and this is probably what makes me uh, equally, if not slightly more uncomfortable, is in the, the DOD space for, for, you know, United States government, uh, DOD, um, where people, because, you know, it's a business, they want to, they want to, they want to maximize their profit. They, they don't necessarily want to, you know, spend the, uh, it's not just the, the salary of developers, right? It's also like the, um, there's other costs associated with it. It can be pretty expensive if you don't outsource. But then you see these companies outsource a lot of this development to countries that have for sure active counterintelligence, counterintelligence against um, our own, you know, we, we all live in the U.S. So, uh, you know, we're under the U.S. government's blanket here, right? So you see, um, I guess this is one thing I was going to mention that makes me uncomfortable about this space is that I see a lot of things being sent to these countries that we know have, you know, essentially a, a cold war esque cyber. And I'm using the term cyber. I know I'm a fraud, but I'm using, <laughs> I'm using the term cyber, uh, you know, active cybersecurity warfare kind of going on like a cold warfare type deal going on. Um, and we're just saying, Hey, like here, develop code for us. That yeah. seems to be pretty dicey. That seems like that's a huge conflict of interest. It definitely makes me nervous. And I, yeah, I understand the need to cut costs or I understand the desire, not the need to cut costs, but that seems like 
that's like the worst place to cut costs. I don't know. What do yeah. you guys think about this? Am I off base here? Is no, even, but is this a trend you, you also have seen? I mean, uh, the, yeah. the thing is, though, I mean, the, what I love about it is that it the motivation is the polar opposite. Really, they're like, we will pay whatever to, as long as we get really good, like fast development teams, right? Ah. Because if you think of like, in some cases, these projects are like printing money, you know? Yeah, so exactly. It's, yeah. it's like, um, and not like in any nefarious way, but because they are gathering so much support that it drives the price of the crypto up and, and whatever it might be. Um, but they are, or they're funded by other projects that have this and they see a need for this in the market. And they're like, yes, like we want this. And so we'll pay development teams or, or whatever it might be to, to do what that we need to do. And that's an incredible motivation. It's just, you have other problems you just described. And yeah. And it, it is it, so it's, it's a speed thing more so than a, uh, or talent thing more so than a, than a desire to cut cost. Cause I definitely know when I've seen it in, in the DOD space, the federal space, it's a hundred percent to cut costs. They're like, we, the government's willing to pay for this product. But, uh, you know, we're going to outsource it to XYZ country. I'm not going to name any specific countries. I don't, I don't, I don't need that in my life right now. But yeah. uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to call out any specific countries. But, you know, let's say I'm an outsider. You're like, wow, that's really? Are you sure? What is this thing doing? Oh, God, why are you really? Have you not thought through the considerations there? And but like, so this, that's interesting. So it's more of just like a talent thing and like a speed of development. It's it's not even, ta it's just talent. It's not even yeah. speed. It's just, we want whoever, whoever wants to work on this project is an in, and is interested in it. We, you know, I'm not saying we as a me, but like the colloquial we is that we don't care where you live. We want you to develop if you have a passion for it and go for it. Um, and that's how, and they want to pay people to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, I would also say probably it's experience related, right? Like, you know, it's, so the industry in and of itself has taken a few years to come up to speed, but where the people that were interested in it and actually developing smart contracts and developing blockchain and distributed apps and everything like that, a lot of it were in those countries where that was the only way, that was the, the most interesting thing for some of these technologists to actually work on, right? Um, and so they've got the experience, they've developed these platforms and these ways to actually, you know, get involved. And so naturally they're the first ones up. If you want somebody that's already built a distributed app, who knows how to do X, Y, and Z, you're going to turn to those people that have those expertise. And some of them aren't coming from a traditional background. I mean, here in the States, most of the people that, you know, are living, you know, that are technologists that are software engineers have probably been snapped up by Facebook and Google and Apple, right? Like the, the, the top talent, that's where they've gone as opposed to these other locations where they just didn't have that opportunity. So, exactly. so, so there, yeah, there's a balance that's there and yeah, to Ken's point, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. It like, especially where it's public, right? Well, most of these projects are open source. We should be able to audit sure. those. And then have a security person actually take a look at it. And yeah, that I brings mean, up a good question. How? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, and the, and it's it could be lucrative for security folks too. Like, if you feel like you oh, have yeah. the chops to go and do it, the bug bounty programs for some of these projects are ridiculous. I mean, we're talking like in the millions if you can find something that's low level enough on like a layer one chain, you know. Um, 
And so it, I, I don't think that the community in general is afraid of, of money, mostly because it's not fiat. So, uh, you know, it's, it, there's, it's kind of like a weird scenario to be in, but, um, but yeah, it's like, you know, it's, there is a, there is a kind of like prove your metal kind of aspect to, um, being able to contribute in the space. And I think it, there, there are a variety of ways that you can do that, uh, whether it's, you know, on a, on an assessment team or individually, uh, to help out. And I think that kind of going back to your, your point, Ken, first Ken, uh, other is, Ken, other Ken is that, you know, I think that there's this concept that you need to be incredibly technical and there are folks that are doing that. I mean, um, you know, like that are looking at very low level things, but you can also sort of be somebody that's coming from cloud security that wants to be involved in the space uh, because there are elements of that as well that I think kind of fly under the radar and will become more important as this all levels out, I think, uh, or in the fraud space or just in the, you know, just in the ideas of like, how do we, how do we help fulfill this and monitoring, right? How do we establish a good way to, to monitor this over, over time or incident response or things like that? So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, one of the oysters, I think, of, of trying to sort of find your way from, a, from the security side and all of our skills, no matter where you are in security, translate in some way, I think. Yeah. Yep. What are the common tech stacks that you see? I mean, you've mentioned... You've mentioned Anchor. You've mentioned uh, the Rust programming language. Um, yeah, are these is Rust kind of the primary language you're you're working with these days? Um, yeah. I assume no Ruby. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. I, I mean, there, I there, I have I have worked on a Ruby application inside of the crypto space, but I won't go beyond that. Um, but there is, yeah, sure. so I would say that the the tech stacks vary. I definitely am working mostly in Rust right now because most of Solana is in Rust, and that's been my you know, the primary viewpoint for me for a little over a year. Um, but uh, you know, there there are one a variety of languages that are certain frameworks that are being built out. So Anchor is one of them on the Solana space, but obviously Solidity and Ethereum is a, a language that we uh, see a lot of, or or Teal on the you know sort of algo side. But um, I would say. The tech stacks, the, the one thing that is consistent across the board is uh, probably JavaScript and React because mm. all of the clients, at least right now, or most of them are built, um, you know, with that, with that SDK, right? Just to kind of like hit the, the API node or, or whatever. So I think if you are a JavaScript developer or you're, a, you're really used to looking at stuff in JavaScript, React or Node, um, you can really very well play in this space. That all translates over, like you said. I mean, it's pretty. I mean, yeah. I was thinking it would have to be pretty performant, you know, systems to to perform. Any time you're dealing with like a ton of financial transactions, per performance is always pretty pretty critical there. Um, which you know, when, I mean, you guys have mentioned and kind of talked about auditing many many times. But how is auditing looking? You know, most of the time. I mean, the reason I say this, I know there was uh, some confusion when we we had listed an article. I don't know within the last couple of months, in one of these episodes we had talked about. I don't know, it was either two fifty or three hundred and fifty million, something like that, stolen. But there was no real like. There was no paper trail. There was no, there was nothing. It was very difficult for anyone to figure out what exactly had happened. And um, it feels like it's, you know, an auditing issue for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I think part of it is 
that you have it's kind of like okay let's let's make a comparison to cloud like remember how hard it was to look at cloud trail like in the early days like mm-hmm. trying to f- make sense of what the hell was going on or whether there was a security issue or you know it, it, like trying to figure out CloudWatch and you know figure all that out and now we have all these tools and stuff available that make that a lot easier and there's Splunk integrations and whatever i think right. we're in a similar space where like the information is there but there aren't a lot of or at least i'm not aware of a lot of products that's collecting all that information and exposing it easily um or even if they are, the queries aren't necessarily security driven. They're more like analytics driven or like what's new in the market or how are we going to predict the next, you know, big um, token or NFT drop or whatever sure. it is. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. more like data analytics. So I think that once a, once a security firm cracks the nut on like, all right, well, um, here's how we take all of the information in and we're examining the entire uh, chain and we're able to like, have this live feed and you know generate alerts off of that that's going to be a a big win um there are some that are doing this type of data analytics uh there's an interesting project uh on the like called flip side that basically bug bounties data queries to their user base to be like hey we need to know we you know like the this change of you know how this token has performed over the last like whatever three months compared to this other obscure metric or whatever and then they'll you know put a bounty out and they'll take all these queries from these folks and reward them all in cryptocurrency and then come back to it and be like all right this person had the the top answer and so we give them a bigger bounty so it's an interesting way to incentivize you know the community to help with data analytics i don't know i think there's a lot of ideas out there um that uh that we that we can hone in on but data collection and incident response and gathering that info and analytics is, is uh, it's not quite there. I don't think. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I mean, one of the things where one thing that we have in our back pocket is the fact, fact that all these or most of the chains are public, right? So even if we don't know exactly what's going on right now, we can go replay that entire chain and everything that happened on it. Yep. Right? If you look at some of the block explorers and what actually goes on within the chains. Um, so like there's a lot of data to play with and I, somebody's going to crack it eventually, right? Like how to monitor those chains for security incidents or like anomalies and like it, you know, it'd be an interesting space to play in for sure. Yeah, I mean, to your point, you can always go back. And that, that mm-hmm. is like a, I mean, just a super cool. That's the point, right? Yeah. yeah. And so once you do, you're like, oh, man, let me go look at all the things we didn't notice, you know, yeah. 10 years ago. Uh, yep. So that'll be cool. Yeah, it'll be interesting when, you know, when, when those tools do start to come out. Well, good. I, I mean, Ken, we've been going for an hour. Or Ken's, we've been going for an hour. Um, I like, I want to be cognizant of everyone's time. It's, it feels like we could keep this discussion going and i think we should have a follow-up right um like we didn't even get into the whole nft space really like we've been pretty you know focused on blockchain stuff and there's there's just so much going on in that industry in general um that i i would like to continue the conversation at some point you know maybe in a month or so if you're willing to come back and keep having the discussion ken let's do it i want to control her nft stamp of approval yes (laughs) it only cost you like a million dollars. Yeah. Worth yeah. it. 
Uh, that's true. We need our own security chain where we like give out NFTs for uh, audits, right? Like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So they know who to blame, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're just gonna put Ken Toller's name on everything. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Here's his private wallet address. Don't worry about it. Oh, good lord. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So we we appreciate the time, Ken. Um, we'll just like any last minute thoughts before we you know close out this week as far as like where to start, like. You know, if someone's interested, like anything that you could recommend there before we we say goodbye. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think my the one thing I want everyone to leave, like in the security side, is that there is a place for you in the cryptocurrency world. If you feel like it's like uh, technically unattainable, like trust me, is like once you start getting into it, you'll realize that there's a lot of places that you can go. And as far as where to start. Just like, uh, you know, there, there's so many resources right now in, in terms of developing smart contracts. I think you dropped a couple in there. There's the you know, Open Zeppelin stuff. There's the, uh, yeah, I saw the not so smart contracts uh, hop in there. There's Ethernaut, you know, to like just go and get an idea of how to work in these places and break stuff. Just like we do, you know, in the Port Swigger Web Academy or whatever, you know, pick your favorite Udemy course. Just get your hands on it. And that's the fastest way to learn in my opinion. Um, and once you do that, I think you'll realize, okay, it's not as hard as I thought. Yep. Cool. Well, good deal. Um, yeah, we, we will be back next week. If you have more questions for Ken Toller, he is in our Slack channel and I'm sure, you know, there's others in there that also have experience in the cryptocurrency space. Um, we'd love to continue the conversation. So join Slack um, let us know what your experiences are in the space and you know what you, yeah, what you're interested in. And that would be great. Um, otherwise we'll be back next week. Uh, Ken CK tricky Ken, you know, anything <laughs> else that you want to add for today before we close it out? No, just appreciative of your time, Ken Toller. Um, and then I just want to reiterate, you know, huge appreciation to the people that attended our course at Colonel Con to the Colonel Con organizers themselves. And I will tease out that we did, Seth and I take a little uh, time during this trip to film various parts of it so that you, uh, as the viewer, can see kind of behind the scenes uh, of what it's like to travel to a conference and give training and go to speaker parties. And yeah, just we gave a little, little behind the scenes footage there. So um, look, look for that video coming out as well. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate the uh, the time you took with me. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for the insight, Ken. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Thanks. Later. See ya. And if I can figure out how to turn this off, guys, I'll end the broadcast. All right. Bye. Later. Bye, everyone.